Hello, and welcome to the Disrupting PFAS podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Hale. For this season of the podcast, I have curated four episodes focusing on the detection, destruction, and sequestration of PFAS using novel materials or processes. Though emerging technologies are promising for the ex-situ treatment of PFAS, subsurface applications are needed for PFAS remediation. Dr. Kurt Pinnell and his team from Brown University have been doing exciting work with the subsurface application of materials commonly used for ex situ treatment. This includes in situ sequestration of PFAS using ion exchange resin. This research is especially relevant to the theme of the podcast because it involves both a novel process and material. So let's learn more about the technology from one of its innovators. Welcome to the podcast, Kurt. Thank you. Nice to be here. So I understand you are the 250th anniversary professor of engineering at Brown University. Could you please tell us about that distinction? (laughs) Yeah, my wife thinks I'm 250 years old, but um, that's when the the school was uh, founded. So that's how it ended up that way. Um, And the donors are anonymous. So they just, I guess they settled on that. Um, So I came to Brown about four years ago. Um, and I set up my lab. I, I basically have two types of labs. One is a mass spec lab. Um, we do a lot of the analysis for PFAS in that lab using high res. So we can look at both uh, targeted and non-targeted analysis. And then we have a more, um, what I call a more like soils or, or wet lab where we run our experiments. Um, and we do the analysis in a separate lab. Very interesting. Um, could you please talk about some of the other positions you've held before joining Brown? <clears throat> sure. I was um, I did a postdoc and then I was a research professor at Michigan um, in the civil and environmental engineering program, and then I moved to Georgia Tech in '95, I think, right before the Olympics. So I got to experience the Olympics in Atlanta, which was nice because it was right on campus. Um, and I went through basically assistant associate and full professor. Um, and then in 2009, um, I left Georgia Tech to go to Tufts to be department chair of civil and environmental engineering. And I did that for about eight years. And this opportunity then arose at um, Brown. I really wanted to get back doing more research rather than administration. Um, and so I sort of shifted back and now, now I'm pretty much focused on my research and I teach um, undergrad class intro to environmental engineering and then a grad class on fate transport remediation. Um, mostly all, mostly subsurface uh, in situ, try to focus on in situ processes. Um, and we, I sort of lead the environmental engineering program here at Brown. Excellent. Well, thanks for sharing your, your background and, and your path to Brown with us. Um, before we get into the details of the technology you've been looking at, <clears throat> I wanted to ask you more of a philosophical question. So PFAS are regarded to be one of the most challenging environmental contaminants we deal with. You know, what is your outlook on our ability to tackle this human-made contaminant with technology? So <clears throat> I always think, um, I guess my philosophy is that, you know, we're engineers, we have this challenge. It may take us some time, but we should um, try a lot of different things. Um, some things will fail or not work so well, and um, and we continue that effort. So I think one way to look at it is now we're, we're sort of in this um, – what I would call a containment mode, where we're trying to contain the releases. They're, they're widespread, but we're, we're trying to figure out what the releases are, how, how fast they're moving, what, 
sort of natural processes influence um, PFAS transport and fate. And then in terms of the technologies, I think, you know, the things I work on now are these in-situ sequestration processes um, with basically, as you mentioned, ex-situ materials, right? How do we get them into the ground? Um, and so I'm drawing a lot on work I did previously with nanomaterials and also with, um, I did a lot of work with surfactants or polymer flooding um, way back when we were trying to remove chlorinated solvents. So it builds upon our, I think we all are building upon our experiences and trying different things to be able to treat these compounds in situ. So I sort of think we're at this stage now where we're containment, ex situ treatment, we can do okay. Um, but it's really expensive. And of course, the holy grail is to have an in-situ treatment. I sort of think we might have to do some sort of combined remedies or treatment train where we might have a reaction that occurs to get, get some of the material. Um, and then we might have to still use a sequestration to contain that. Um, but I think, you know, in general, there's uh, some resistance to sequestration because it doesn't destroy the compound. Um, and so you still have to worry about, okay, well, we have this compound in the ground, now do we, what do we do with it? But I still think in a sense, as we progress and maybe we get technologies that can destroy the, the compounds, um, then we could combine those and use them together. And, and that'll probably be where we're headed, where we, it's not gonna be one thing that treats these compounds. And the other thing to remember is it's a huge class of compounds. And right now we may only be looking at six, you know, or, or whatever is the main, driver for, for at a site but there may be compounds down the road <clears throat> that we learn are toxic that then we have to adjust and focus on those so i think it's i think it will keep us busy for a while and uh but i think there is potential to um find remedies that can be applied in situ to break down and, and sequester these compounds and that's that's sort of where we're headed we're trying to do both um, but as you know it's really difficult to break these compounds down at, at room temperature Mm-hmm. Well, that's great perspective, and I think it really sets the stage for our conversation. I think I share your outlook on that. Um, you know, I think, you know, I think we can tackle PFAS. Uh, technology will definitely play a role in that. Some things may work, others may not. Agree with you that it will take some time, but I, you know, I would also foresee a lot of technologies, you know, working together, complementing each other, you know, perhaps in the treatment train. Um, I'm a hydrogeologist, so I'm especially interested in in situ remedies and what occurs, you know, within the aquifer matrix. Um, so, I guess let's get into the technology itself that you've been working on and your team. So, congratulations to you and your team and the recent publication in the Journal of Hazardous Materials. And that presentation is titled In Situ Sequestration of Perfluoroalkyl Substances Using Polymer Stabilized Ion Exchange Resin. So, your research is novel to me in that it aims to deliver ion exchange resin to the subsurface as a permeable adsorptive material. Um, could you tell us about ion exchange resin? You know, what is it, how it works? <laughs> so I am certainly not an ion exchange resin expert. And there, of course, are many people that have done uh, that type of work for years and years. Um, so we're, we're basically, uh, you know, trying to sequester or attach the, the PFAS uh, molecules onto the resin. And hopefully that it's a, we hope that it's, irreversible process where they're basically adsorb or stick or exchange 
and then they don't come back off. Um, and of course, that's that's sort of where we're headed with it. So it would function as an exchange resin where you you um, basically are focused on the polar group uh, primarily within the PFAS. Um, and so that's that's the idea is really to take um, in, in a sense we're agnostic about the the actual resin. Our our goal is really show proof of concept that we can get these in the ground and have them attach onto the uh, soil or aquifer material and sort of coat that and then form a permeable uh, barrier. We don't want the particles to be trapped in the pore space so we get no flow. That would, you know, we'd have, then we'd have bypassing. So we, <clears throat> our goal is to um, get these particles to be small enough um, and stable enough that then they attach to the surface and sort of coat the surface of the, the grain or the, or the soil. And in that way, um, enhance the adsorptive capacity of the native material. Um, so really that's our focus. And there's obviously probably much better um, resins or many different resins um, that could be used and it could be applied. Um, and we, in a way we picked one that was just being used in the literature and had been reported. There was some data out there so we could, we could run our own experiments and compare to that. But the key for us was to reduce the size and stabilize it in a polymer that then we could inject. And so, <clears throat> you know, our key contribution is how do we make a stable uh, emulsion or suspension that then allows the material to be attached or absorbed onto the soil grains and form this permeable barrier in situ. And that's really our contribution. We're not, and again, I'm not an ion exchange resin expert, so that's, you know, there's probably many other, there's people working on different resins and, and the idea is how do you then uh, take those and make them injectable? Okay, uh, that's actually where I wanted to head next. Uh, I'm really interested in, um, you know, the process to prepare the resin, how it's delivered into the subsurface, et cetera. So uh, you touched on it already, but could you please talk about how the ion exchange resin is prepared uh, and delivered into the porous media? All right, so we just start with um, off-the-shelf uh, Amberlite 910. And so I, I have a little, you asked me to bring a little container. This is just the stuff we bought from Sigma Aldrich. If you uh, if we open it up and look, you might be able to see inside, it's this little, uh, that's what it is, mm -hmm. all right? Um, so it's little beads are kind of stick together. This is problematic a little bit. <laughs> So when we first started working with this, it's like, how do we get this stuff to, uh, we want it in the two to 300 nanometer range. That's what the size we want. So what we do is, and it's described in the paper, um, and what we do is we basically uh, ball grind it first, and then we put it in a blender, um, and then we sonicate it for a little while. And then we have a polymer, um, and again, we used the um, off-the-shelf polymer. It's called Pleuronic um, and <clears throat> relatively non-toxic uh, polymer. So the idea was we don't want to put something in the ground that's you know going to cause problems in terms of toxicity. Um, there are probably other polymers one could use, um, but in our paper, we just uh, we don't try to keep the chemicals proprietary or anything. Um, we explain the process and how we did it and. So we mix those together. 
Um, and it forms a milky white solution. Um, and it, it looks a little bit like a cream or maybe a little bit thinner than that. The idea is we don't want to have um, high viscosity because, I mean, we want some viscosity can help you in terms of delivery. But it, if you have, if you're in an unconfined aquifer and you have a high viscosity fluid, um, then you have to adjust your head. You know, you, you, you're not going to get the stuff in unless you inject it at really high pressures. And we wanted it to be injectable at relatively uh, low pressure and not at natural gradient, but, you know, flow rates that are, are reasonable where we didn't have to pressurize the system to inject it and dis disrupt everything. So that was our goal um, to, to have a solution that was low viscosity, uh, low particle size so we could inject. And again, a lot of this work comes from um, work we've done with nanomaterials, uh, such as iron oxides and, and facilitating their transport with different polymers. So we've tried a lot of different polymers to enhance the mobility of nanoparticles in porous media. Um, you know, things like xanthan gum, um, some non-ionic surfactants, um, anionic surfactants. We've tried a, a whole bunch of different uh, surfactants. So part of the background to that was how do we get particles um, into, you know, injecting? We don't want them caking or blocking the, the pore space. And then how do we get them to move? And then we want them to attach. So, and also it's sort of a balance. You don't want them to, you want them to attach, but not too much. So if they're really uh, strongly attachment, you look high depth position, then you clog the pores. You can have basically physical straining um, and too much attachment. And so it's a balance between, um, we want attachment, but not too much. And so we're, our idea is we want to create a, you know, radius of influence. It might be a meter or two. And then you would inject and have the have these uh, areas, and you could go along and create a, a barrier that's perpendicular flow. Okay. Um, pardon? Does that make sense? Is that? Yeah, that makes uh, makes absolute sense. And again, you know, as a hydrogeologist, that, those are the things I'm particularly interested in. You know, how do you deliver this type of material, you know, into the aquifer matrix and into the pore space, you know, without clogging it up. And, you know, in a way that, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be pressurized and can kind of maintain, you know, the, the natural conditions of the system. So that's why this topic was very exciting to me. And as I mentioned in the introduction, I mean, you know, the theme of our podcast here is really focusing on either novel processes or especially novel materials. And although some of these um, materials are off the shelf, it's interesting what you've done to transform them. Uh, in, in your, with your, especially with your background in, you know, nanomaterials and, you know, being able to deliver this material to the subsurface, which I agree, you know, in situ is very important for the remediation of PFAS. Um, so we talked about, you know, what you need to do to the material, how you get it into the subsurface and kind of the conditions you want to maintain. How are you able to assess, you know, the delivery, the coating, the adhesion, you know, of, a, of the ion exchange resin in the porous media after you, you got it in there. Okay, Jeff, let me um, show you a few things from the paper that'll help uh, present the size and how we uh, analyzed the material and showed that, or demonstrated that it was attached onto the surface. So this is, uh, first thing, this is our DLS analysis, dynamic light scattering um, of the particles. 
<clears throat> and you'll see the main peak is at, at about 230 nanometers. We do have some larger particles here. You'll see a peak out here. Um, when you do DLS, this can just be a few particles, but what it shows is that um, these are these are uh, three different traces, and you can see we're pretty much in the two, two to 300 nanometer range, and that's really where we want to be. And the next thing, next figure I want to show you, this is in the supplementary information in the, in the paper, but this shows you the distribution with distance from the inlet. So again, we were running column studies. Um, this is sort of a proof of concept um, type of paper. But what's really nice about th what this shows is we section the columns after the experiments, after we inject, and then we basically inject the solution and then we go to the background or, or background uh, synthetic groundwater or a, uh, just a background electrolyte solution and then flush out <clears throat> any residual. So <clears throat> this shows you the distribution of the uh, carbon with distance and you can see it's quite uniform um, across the length of the column. And this is what we want. We don't want a whole bunch in the front and then it drops down. So sometimes when you see particle um, distribution curves, you get a lot of attachment right near the inlet and then it drops way down. And this mm -hmm. shows that we get a very uniform uh, distribution of the, the, the basically the beads um, within the porous medium. And last thing I wanna show you that is probably the most convincing is uh, we did some SEM imaging um, before and after. So this on the left is before. So this is a sand grain um, before treatment. And on the right is after treatment. And you can see all these little bumps on the surface. And so then, of course, the question is, are these really you know, the beads? Or is that just that you picked a different grain of soil and it, it, it's more bumpy than the other one? <laughs> so which is a good question, honestly. So what we did was then we run EDS. Um, so this is a way to look at the elemental composition. Um, and you can see these scans down below. And of course we get, you know, you get a lot of oxygen and, and different elements. But what I wanna show you, this C is the carbon. And then you see it jumps way up on the right-hand side. So we basically scan this little zone uh, for these. And you'll see that these are a lot of our elements here, but the carbon goes way up. Um, and that demonstrates that what's on that surface is, are the beads, um, the carbon beads. So, yeah, I, I was interested in the microscopy and I'm glad you shared that. Um, you know, so it's it's evident just by visual inspection that it goes from a, a much smoother surface to um, a much more textured surface. And then you get the additional proof of uh, the, the carbon uh, spiking up, if you will, uh, when the material is adhered to the sand grain. So that's very interesting. I'm glad you could share that with us, Kurt. Thanks for sharing that information, Kurt. Um, we've been talking about the process of delivering the ion exchange resin into the porous media for in situ sequestration. We've talked about uh, the importance of it, you know, adhering to the matrix and how how you went about demonstrating that you know it's been delivered to the matrix and it's adhering there. Um, let's talk about the actual absorption and removal of PFAS by the resin. Uh, how was that tested in the laboratory? Yeah, so we used um, two approaches, Jeff. The first is we did a traditional batch reactor test um, with the material um, adsorption isotherms. Um, so that was the sort of the, the first test. And we and we used both um, individual PFAS and we used mixtures. 
So one thing we did that was a little bit different than what we've done in the past is, you know, we use PFOA and PFOS, but then we did a mixture of six. Um, so we did those in batch. And then after that, we had a pretty good idea of the absorptive capacity. Um, it was pretty, um, pretty high absorptive capacity. And that was, we used the material after we had prepared it, which means after we reduced the size. Um, one thing that was interesting was that we, we increased capacity when we reduced size. So we didn't lose capacity when we, um, as we modified the material, which was something we were worried about. Um, a lot of times when you reduce size, you do increase the absorptive capacity, but in some materials, that's not always the case, especially ones that are micropores. So that was the first step. And then we, what we did was we ran additional column studies where we delivered the material or, or delivered the resin first once we, and then we flushed with a little bit of background solution and then we introduced <clears throat> the different uh, individual or mixture of uh, PFAS. So a lot of times what we'd start with is more a more environmentally relevant concentration. So we'd initially inject about 10 micrograms per liter or 10 parts per billion, um, which is still on the high end, but it's more reasonable. Um, and we'd inject that for a while, but then after about 15 or 20 pore volumes when we weren't seeing anything break through in the, or come out of the end of the column, <clears throat> we decided, well, you know, this could be a this could take a long time based on the absorption isotherms. So we increased the concentrations um, quite a bit to the milligram per liter range. Hmm. Um, and so we were using, for the mixture, we were using 60 milligrams per liter total, 10 milligrams per liter of each of the six. Um, and then what we did was we proceeded to carry out the experiment until we saw breakthrough. Um, and so we were trying to figure out what's the sort of the maximum capacity at these very high loadings to see if it matched uh, what we observed in the batch adsorption isotherms. Um, and, and that was the approach there. Otherwise, we would have had to run for many, many, many pore volumes until we got breakthrough. Um, and once we've got, once we reached that max or when the uh, PFAS started to break through. We ran them um, until they reached about their influent concentration, and then we uh, stopped the experiment. Um, so that that was how we tested the performance in the what we call dynamic or in the column systems to see how the delivered material that was attached uh, was working. And and of course we were worried about um, detachment, worried about competitive absorption, uh, those types of things that that can happen. Um, when you have, you know, when you have these materials attached to it. So worry about the resin releasing, does it release over time? We didn't observe that. Um, and we also were interested to see about competitive absorption between the different um, PFAS substances or, or different PFAS species that we injected. Well, that makes sense. Um, so I guess transitioning here to my next question, um, and I think competitive absorption could come, complained to this as well. What additional complexities could occur in the, the native aquifer materials, native groundwater that's impacted by industrial sources of PFAS? So if we're talking, if we're looking at, you know, applying this technology to an aquifer, um, what additional complexities could occur in the native aquifer materials, native groundwater, and that's impacted with industrial sources of PFAS? Yeah, so there is a, a number of things, of course, we could we could investigate or look at um, that might be relevant at, at certain sites and not at others. But some of the key things are if you have some background material, so you could have um, natural organic matter um, occurring. Usually it's 
relatively low in groundwater, or you could have some type of um, other organic contaminant in your system. So you could have other organic species that are competing. Um, and so we worry about that. Um, we've, we've started doing experiments um, to look at that, but um, that wasn't really covered in this, this paper because it was more of a proof of concept. Uh, <clears throat> we worry a little bit about you know ionic strength, as, as we always do, I think. We, we worry about ionic strength. Um, we ran at relatively, you know, I would call medium ionic strength. We're at 10 millimolar. Um, but you could have effects of, of different competing uh, ionic species in your system. Um, and the other thing is if, if you had um, different polymers in your system, you may or may not have um, polymers. They could also impact um, your performance. So <clears throat> we're, we're looking at, you know, long-term stability of the resin. You know, does the resin stay attached? You know, if you change solution conditions, um, so far it, it seems to work pretty well. And the other thing is um, basically the competition between other organic species or other things in the background solution or in the native groundwater that you know were were sort of um, might be competitive. The last thing we're sort of looking at, we you know most of the materials we use so far are relatively clean, um, either reference you know aquifer materials or aquifer materials that are primarily quartz sand. You know, the, the ones that have the high permeability, we expect that's where most of the transport is and that's where the least amount of absorptive capacity is. So the, the idea was you can get the biggest bang for your buck in those types of materials. Um, but now we're transitioning to other types of aquifer materials, which are, you know, finer materials. They might have other species in there that, that could um, either impact the injection um, you know, how well we can distribute the material or impact the performance of the material once we get it injected. So that's sort of where we're headed. We want to know, you know, long-term performance, how to different, how different system parameters um, could impact the performance of the resin. And I think these are all logical things that, you know, anyone would say, well, what about this, Kurt? You know, we need to look at that. And, and that's sort of where we're headed with it right now. The first paper was really like, just to demonstrate that it has, you know, pretty good potential to be a sequestration agent. Do you have any research uh, in progress or plan to uh, answer or address those types of questions? Yeah, we, we just um, got a new CERTIP grant where we're going to look at uh, the longer term performance of these injectable materials. So that's that's uh, that's where we're headed with the, the new project. Um, and that should be online pretty soon, hopefully by spring. But of course, we'll continue our work. Um, we have a number of projects going on um, with this type of work, as most people do now, because PFAS is, you know, pretty popular mm -hmm. research topic these days. So we'll continue this work. And but uh, the idea is that we can look at these details um, and then try to run some, you know, pilot-scale field tests, partner with um, other people to run those types of tests using this type of technology. Well, it's very exciting. Um, you know, definitely always interested in how to take this type of research and uh, bring it into the field and and deploy it. So you've you've talked about that. You know, this initial paper was a proof of concept, and the results uh, look pretty promising and exciting. Uh, you know, we understand that you're interested in looking uh, at the long-term viability of 
you know, the technology and, and you have to look at, you know, some of those uh, aquifer type considerations when you get out into the field. I'm also interested in scale. You know, you just mentioned you'd be looking to pilot test it. Um, you know, how scalable um, would you see this technology in the future? You know, what's your vision uh, for its application to contaminated aquifers? Yeah, so this is a great question, Jeff. Um, so usually when I do work in the in the field, um, I like to partner with different groups. So there's basically two ways to look at this. One is we have to get the material small enough, um, and then <clears throat> adding it with a polymer is not too difficult to do in the field, or you could have a concentrated solution um, that you prepared and then diluted it once you got to the field. But the key thing, I think, is to to uh, how do we reduce the size? So how do we go from the beads that I showed you in the little container and get them down to 200 nanometers um, in a cost-effective way? So that, to me, is the major thing. And so um, I'm working with some of the suppliers now to sort of tackle that issue um, if they're, you know, if they're interested in, in developing in this direction. Um, so you would have to set up a system to produce enough mass or enough of the material that you could then inject it. And so um, that's, an, that's a critical step to moving this technology forward. I think the mixing with the polymer, uh, once you get the size reduction um, and the injection process will be um, not, a, not a huge challenge. I mean, we, we've, we do that in the field now, you know, consultants do a lot of injections now. Um, I think that part is, pretty well established. So the key thing is how do we get this material, um, how do we deliver it to the site, mix it, and then uh, inject it. Um, so I think that's where the, that's where my focus is now in terms of making this more commercially viable um, and, 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 it, and then able to pilot test. Yeah, my mind goes to a funnel and gate type system just to reduce the amount of volume oh. that would need to be injected. Um, right. So, you know, that might be one way to go as well. <clears throat> um, yeah. So, so my thoughts on, like, if you go to a funneling gate, you can basically reduce the, you know, the area that you need to treat or inject. You you can almost do a trenching uh, application, right? It's the, the size becomes less important because you could just inject. Um, but sort of the holy grail of where I want to get to is where we can inject it in any, any place that just by through a regular injection well. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, so we don't we don't have to go to funneling gate. We can inject it anywhere. Um, that's sort of where I that's sort of where I come from. You know, just my background is that that's what I want. So, um, and that's you know if you if you couldn't reduce the size, you get into a situation where you can't reduce the size. You just need to mix it into the soil. Then probably a funneling gate makes sense because then you can trench out a little area. Um, you can you can put it in basically. You can inject it however you want to. You can do high pressure injection. You wouldn't necessarily um, need to have it flow with the natural groundwater. Um, so I think the, to me, the funneling gate's like a fallback if we can't get, you know, the other part working. Um, that you could still apply the technology, but you wouldn't have to worry so much about getting the size down and, and being able to inject it anywhere. Um, that's what I was thinking about it along the same lines. You know, maybe as a fallback, it just allows you to kind of control 
the, right. the circumstances um, a little bit better. And I could almost see that, you know, an extended gate where it's a, it's not a gate so much a, as it is a gauntlet of maybe complementary uh, in-situ technologies. So just kind of thinking right. off the cuff here. But, you know, I also see this also being complementary with just, you know, basic you know, soil scraping or soil removal, you know, as we know, especially at AFFF type releases, a lot of mass is hung up in the shallow soil. Uh, it's, held, you know, held in the Vado zone to, due to interfacial sorption, but it continues to leach. Uh, you know, so it's, it, in some ways it's, you know, just depending on the size of that footprint, you, you know, you can reduce that source strength, but then you still have the dissolved plume to deal with and this right. sounds like it might be the perfect match so it's very exciting and i am sincerely uh, interested in in this subject i'm really in, you know i a lot of my focus is on phaeton transport um and you know the differential sorption of pfas to the aquifer matrix you know um positively charged mineral surfaces and organic carbon and to the extent right. we can sort of control that with this type of process and take you know this what's traditionally looked as an ex situ treatment material and put it in the subsurface i i think that's um very exciting that wraps up this episode of the disrupting pfas podcast thank you to dr Kurt Pinnell of Brown University for joining us today. I'm your host, Jeff Hale, reminding you to never save forever. 